Well, it's good to see everybody this morning. Go ahead and turn your Bibles, if you would, please, to the first book of Samuel, chapter 15. I'm going to get started here quickly because I'd like to make it through the rest of this chapter. But if I don't, then Brother Sean will pick up where I left off. So, first book of Samuel, chapter 15. We're going to be picking up today in verse 12, Uh, but let me first just go through a little bit what we've already been through, and uh, as we, I'm not going to read the entire chapter, we're just going to go through the chapter uh, together here, and hopefully reach the end. What we first started off with is in verse 1, is that Samuel had met up with Saul, and there were, uh, there were battle instructions given to Saul. Uh, the assignment was confirmed to completely to obliterate the Amalekites. Total extinction of the Amalekites. Kill both man and women, infant, nursing child, ox and sheep, camel, donkey, everything must be annihilated. And then we jump to verse 4 and 5. So Saul gathered the people together, 210,000 soldiers. He came to the city of Amalek and he laid wait in the valley. Uh, he attacked. There was grace shown to the Kenites, for they had showed kindness to the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt, uh, his progeny of Jethro, uh, that was uh, Moses' uh, father-in-law. And then we saw in 7, 8, and 9, Saul had changed, changed the plans and trust in his own way and not the Lord's. Verse 10 and 11, we saw that God had regretted, repenteth God, and making Saul king. And then we see Samuel is grieved and he cries out to the Lord all night long. And that's always a great place to leave it because we can kind of see the heart of Samuel. We know Samuel obviously had a very extensive ministry his entire life, totally devoted to God. He was a guy that was completely devoted. He loved God. His motives were right. Um, He loved the people of God. And he brought the people back to God in repentance. We saw that in earlier chapters. So we know that Samuel's heart is right. And here he is, you know, after God had told him, I regret making Saul a king. And it pushes him. It pushes him to his knees as it should push, push each and every one of us to our knees when leaders fail, when leaders fall. We are quick to judge. We really are ready to totally attack and destroy those who fall, it seems like, in our day. But the right reaction always is to turn to God. And our hearts should be broken. We shouldn't make fun of people, get involved in shaming and whatever else. Um, we're always to expose evildoers. Don't get me wrong. But when people fall, uh, it should break our hearts. You want to know why? Because it could be you next. It could be you next. We need to treat other people how we ourselves want to be treated. Which brings us to verse 12. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. Samuel is an early riser. Getting up to go meet with Saul, and it was told to Samuel in his searching for Saul that Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a 
monument for who? God? doesn't say that, does it? It says for himself. And he has gone around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. You almost kind of can see, you know, Saul's on the move. You know, he's uh, putting forth a lot of action to get to wherever he's going, to his designation, which would be what? To set up a monument to himself. Saul didn't waste any time in building a shrine to himself. I mean, the aroma of war is still fresh in the air, and he's already disappeared off to Carmel to build a trophy for himself. Give you any idea his motive and where he's at in all of this? I mean, there's an obsessive urge for respect and validation here. It's written all over even our own humanity. You know, without Christ, our identity becomes what? The God of pleasure, purpose, and self-exaltation. Anytime we, we abandon God, we are in search of some way or something to fill in that gap of where we have fallen. And this is beyond belief, and it, it solidifies His guilt. Uh, this kind of behavior should not be seen from those who claim to be of the Lord, but this kind of behavior is really from those in the world. I mean, everywhere you look in the world, what? Everybody today is what? Building monuments to themselves. Right? They're obsessed with attention. Right? They always want to be seen. I mean, now, today, in our world, and I don't mean to always harp on social media. I, I think social media is good. But it gives us a platform for who? For ourselves. Right? It's our stage. You know, we can be exalted. We can be seen. We can be favored. We can be liked. You know, we can be shared. You know, all these things that are seem almost nearly impossible from a humanity level, from face-to-face contact, meeting with other people, gathering with other people, it seems like these, uh, these instruments are provided for us today to exalt ourselves, to lift ourselves up. And whenever, there's a, whenever there is a void in our lives, we'll always seek at some point, somehow, to accommodate or fill in that gap with something that's going to butter ourselves up and fixate ourselves upon ourselves. Jesus gave us a clear warning in, uh, in Luke chapter 6, verse 26. He says, Woe to you, in other words, cursed to you, when all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. And this is the behavior of those who are not Christian, false prophets. These are the, this is the behavior of the world. We see something similar to this in 2 Samuel 18.18, 18, where we are told that the marble pillar which Absalom set up in his lifetime, which was called Yad Absalom. And we know, at least if you read your Bibles, you're not familiar with the story, we know what happened to Absalom, right? Well, he prided himself by his hair, which weighed a whopping weight of 200 shekels, which by our measurement would be five pounds. Every year he would cut it because it would become too heavy. you imagine that? 
like ride around on your horse because you're because you had so much hair. It's just like, and this is a guy. You know what I mean? I, I get it. I nothing wrong with guy have guys having long hair, but this is like gone way out of proportion. I mean, this is to the point to where, come on, man, taking us way too far. And then we see here in Second Samuel fourteen, it says, "In all of Israel, hear this: there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot." There was no blemish in him. This guy was 100% pure pride. Right? Totally, totally prideful. He turned on his father, King David. He reaped the consequences. In a strange turn of events, Absalom, actually in the midst of battle, gets his massive head of hair caught in the branches of a tree. Go figure. He then becomes a pincushion with the three spears of Joab and then finished off by ten men that gathered around him as he dangled from the tree. Even his donkey abandoned him. So what does that say to us? No trophy is a good trophy that exalts self. Seriously. The erection of this vainglorious trophy was an additional act of dis- disobedience from King Saul. His pride had overborne his sense of duty in first raising this monument to his own honor and then going to Gilgal to offer a sacrifice to God. Don't you see the problem with all that? Don't you see it? Don't you see it in your own heart though as well? Don't you see that? Where we try to compensate or overshadow our discrepancies with spiritual jargon. Oh, I fasted all day the other day. Or I did this, or I'm out street preaching, or I did this and did that. It's almost like there's nothing wrong with any things, these things if they come out of a pure heart that truly wants to honor and glorify God. They're beautiful things. But a lot of the times, we use these things as like spiritual penance. Right? We're guilty about something. We're guilty because we're not fulfilling our duties either as men or as husbands or as fathers or whatever. Right? So we try to find other ways so that we can still look spiritual and still get the affirmation that helps us, gives us the fuel and adrenaline to continue our Christian lives. It's a dangerous place to be and it's a fine line to walk because we must obey the Great Commission. We must do these things but not in an attempt to cover up a void in life of you just not being responsible in other areas of your life. It's easy to do, right? It's easy for me to stand up here. Well, it's not easy. It's very difficult to stand up here and preach before you guys. But I can just do this, right, and then be a total neglectful father in all other areas of my life and then stand up here and present myself in front of you as a, as, well, I wouldn't say pretty, but I would say as an ornament right up here and putting on a show for all of you guys you guys all you know but it's like and the reality is like you've got to see behind the scenes you've got to meet my wife you've got to meet my family you got to come over to my house that's why the commandment to be hospitable and have people in your home so they can see you not just doing spiritual things right but they can actually see how you really live at home amongst your family, which is, by the way, the true qualification to even be behind the pulpit. So all these things fall into place. And I said all that as just a warning because I've been guilty of that in the past. I've done those things. I've went out when I should have been home. You know, I've done things you know, because I knew that they were spiritually uplifting, 
You know, it was like my cigarette. You know, I get to go out, get my fix. So I feel good about myself and until the medication wears off. I'm back out looking for another opportunity to be spiritual in front of everybody. When in reality, the most spiritual thing I can do is to get out of the limelight and get home in my private life and be godly there and have character and integrity there. That's a word of warning. I mean, Jesus said in, in Matthew sixteen twenty six, he says, what does it profit to a man if he gains the entire world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for your soul? Notice this here. He's saying, what would you do to trade? You know, what would you give in exchange for your soul? Well, I want to be a, I want to be uh, on the Hollywood's A-list for actors. That's all I want to do. That's all I want to be. You know, think about that for a moment. You know, these, these, you know, these people, they get all of the attention of the world. They get all of the accolades. They get the Oscars. Everything they want, but they're damned. In the end, they split hell wide open. What's the point? What's the point of a little moment, a little blot in time, where you get all this glory and all this attention, it's not enduring. It's not. And a lot of these guys, what happens to them? They implode. You want to know why they implode? You want to know why you see a lot of these stars? Well, they turn to drugs and all these different things. First of all, they can't handle being worshipped. Human beings were never designed by God for worship. So when you worship a human being or idolize a human being, they are unable to withstand that. Only God himself can withstand worship. God alone is the one who we need to designate our worship to. When you put that worship that only belongs to God, becomes idolatry and you put it on a human being, what happens to that person? They can't handle it. They short circuit. The chemistry goes berserk because they're not God. You know, they're treated like God. And therefore, what happens? They become destructive, and they destroy themselves. Now, I'm not saying it's a blanket statement for every single person out there. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying we just got to be careful where our attention is and what we're giving our heart to and making sure that the things that we do are done in the right spirit and with the right motive. Well, his next pronouncement was also like a guilty convict. First, he fled the scene of battle, right? Scrambling all over the hillside so he can get somewhere to build himself a monument to himself. Can't even tell you probably how much time it took. I mean, we will literally go to great lengths, won't we, to exalt ourselves? <laughs> it's amazing what people will do, you know, in order to accomplish something for themselves. And then we see in verse 13, Then Samuel went to Saul and said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I mean, this, is, this has got guilt written all over it as well. Anybody's going to run up to the prophet and say that? You already know, right? From, you guys know, you some of you are parents here. You understand that, right? When they meet you at the door telling you that they, they did everything you told them to do. You know they didn't. <laughs> because if they did, you would notice it. You'd come in and say a word. There'd be confidence in them, right? The lack of confidence by having to meet him and tell him that you did this. And for one thing, you know what it is? It is completely disrespectful, I think, to Samuel and to the Lord. It's this familiarity that's been built here. A lack of trust. Total disrespect. Who do you think Samuel is? He was calling out Eli when he was just a boy. 
Are you kidding me? God had showed Eli his sin. And now you think somehow, Saul, in all of your beauty, that you're going to hoodwink Samuel? You think you're going to pull a fast one on him? It ain't working. He's been around long enough and been through enough ministry and around an, enough knuckleheads to know better. He, trust me, he, he knew right away this guy's got an issue. Saul was, you know, Saul wasn't even grieved over his sin. Saul was quite pleased with himself. There was not the slightest bit of shame or guilt in Saul, even though he directly disobeyed the Lord. And these are the signs you have to look for here. Not only in the life of Saul and others, but your own, your own, <clears throat> your own life. I mean, there's times that we sin, right? And we go on doing sins, maybe even habitual sin. And there's no fear of God at all in our lives. We give ourselves freedoms to do things that God never gave us freedom to do. Maybe it's our language. Maybe we're very, we use a lot of profanity. <clears throat> maybe our attitude's just like the world. Maybe we're having sex, maybe we're promiscuous. And we're thinking, well, you know, God doesn't seem to bother, it doesn't seem to matter, or whatever, blah, blah, blah. It matters greatly <clears throat> to the Lord. When we're not grieved about our sin, we need to be grieved over our own sin. And if you're not, that's troubling. And that means there is a, you know, a call for true, biblical, deep repentance that needs to happen. Guzik commentated that he thought Saul was self-deceived, believing he actually carried out the commands of the Lord where he was blinded by his pride. Matthew Poole says Saul was zealous for his own honor and interest. McLaren stated that if Saul had done it, he would have been slower to boast about it. And that's the position that I take. I agree with Barnes as well when he states when Samuel met him there, Saul attempted to hide his conscience of guilt by a feigned, friendly welcome. I agree with that. I believe it was guilt in action. Saul's entire career up to this point has been unstable and full of holes. Uh, this act was a manifestation of his guilt. Just like a lot of actions you see even in false religions, right, in cults, a lot of their stuff is all guilt-based. They're guilty because, you know, in Romans 2.14 and 15, it says, you know, that the blood of Christ cleanses us from a, from a filthy conscience, right? Even Hebrews talks about that. So if you don't have your guilt expiated or removed... Um, you're going to have a very guilty guilt. I mean, even, even believers can operate in this way as well. But what you see is a, fi a, a, like a, a fixation on works, right? Works, works, works. Because they're trying to drive into the kingdom of heaven by their own merits. But the guilt does this to them. It's the guilt that makes them active like that. If they're so burdened down with the exceedingly sinfulness of their own life, their total depravity, their, their wickedness, they're bogged down by this, that they are like Adam and Eve when they sin, what do they do? Immediately they began to work to try to regain what they had lost. They tried to they began to sow, right? Humanity is exactly the same way. You know, because of the guilt of sin, they hide and then they try to somehow establish what was lost 
by an act of their own works. And it seems here that Samuel, as we talked before, thought so as well when he says this in response. In verse 14 he says, But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Think about that for a moment. You know, it's, he's, he's, he's running up to Samuel professing to have obeyed the commands of God and also giving him this, you know, this greeting that he does deserve. But it's a little bit, it's, it's a little bit mockery. It's mocking in some extent uh, because he didn't do these things. But he's trying to, he's trying to excite the, the environment up so it gives him a little bit more cushion for his sin. But you know, it's the, the, his sin gives him away, right? And you hear the animals, the animals that God has specifically told him to destroy, give him away. Saul's hasty greeting to the prophet Samuel would have been very disrespectful, knowing who Samuel was and his pristine reputation. And then when he comes in with this, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? Literally, the literal uh, translation that would be, what is this voice? of sheep in my ears, and the voice of oxen. While Saul's own conscience was silent, they were proclaiming his disobedience. Conscience is a tough thing, right? It is. Um, it's our ally. For the preacher, uh, speaking to someone's conscience, the conscience is always going to be on your side. It's because it's how God has created humanity with a conscience. They know right from wrong. And we try to suppress our conscience, but something, whether it's our preaching, our confrontation, is going to give volume to their conscience. You know, we see people out on the streets when we're preaching, they're walking back and forth. You know, what we're doing as preachers is, yeah, we're preaching the Word of God to them, hoping they'll get saved. We're out there to worship God by proclaiming His Son, but we also know that their conscience is alive, right? And so we try to preach, and we try to add volume. We try to be the bleeding sheep, you know, and the lowing of the oxen in the open air. We try to add volume to their conscience so they can, so they can resonate with that, and hopefully by God's grace, they'll come to repentance. I mean, you ask anybody, and I've asked a lot of people throughout the years. I've asked church people, and I've asked people that were completely lost if they would, if they consider themselves to be a good person. Do you know what most people say, even in the church? They'll say they're a good person. No, as a matter of fact, they'll say, I'm a great person. Most people that you ask, most, I'm not saying all, will tell you, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm basically, I'm a, I'm a good person. Proverbs 20, verse 6 says that most men will proclaim each his own goodness. But who can find, but who can find a faithful man? We don't need a bunch of people proclaiming their own goodness and relying on their own personal trophies, right? We need people that are faithful. And Samuel certainly did not find a faithful man by any means but a man that was proclaiming his own goodness. One who professed his own goodness right in the face of a seasoned prophet and against the competitive voices of the howling spoil of sheep and oxen. 
conscience is, is, is one of those things that if you're not careful, you can become even like Aaron at Sinai when he shifted the blame from himself to others saying, you know how prone these people are to evil and then made, his, made the ridiculous excuse for his actions by saying, then they gave me their gold and I threw it into the fire and out came a calf. <laughs> you know, it, it's that whole, it's the whole, you know, bypassing, you know, and, and then obviously it will go either into repentance or blame. But these characteristics that we have just seen in Saul are not characteristics of a king. They're characteristics of a convict. It's exactly, you take forensics, right? They'll take people through and they'll question them. And a lot of the behavioral patterns that we see in Saul are the very same behavioral patterns that we see in, in guilty convicts that don't tell the truth. These symptoms that come out, these behavioral uh, patterns that, that they see in them gives them away. They know, hey, this guy's this guy's lying. Well it got to it got so bad that we read in verse sixteen that Samuel said, Be quiet. Shut your mouth. Tired of it. Stop. You know, sometimes it just it has to get to that point sometimes where people just need to stop talking. Guilty people love to talk, don't they? You've been around someone who's guilty and has never stopped talking. They just give themselves away. And this is why investigators will let the person talk. Give them a lot of time because they know the more he talks, eventually he's going to give himself away. These people just talk and talk and talk. I know some people are nervous or insecure. They talk a lot. But here it was really, I believe, a lot of it was he just, I mean, really, I mean, I don't want to say getting on Samuel's nerves. But I, I think that Samuel just had enough. I don't want to hear man's voice anymore. Okay? I know you're a king, but you need to be quiet. Because I just spoke to the king of kings last night. I came from the throne room last night. Not your throne, sir. But I came from the throne of God. And he told me some things. So you need to be quiet and you need to listen. And Saul said, Speak on. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. You know, I think a lot of it too is that if you go on in a particular sin and you never repent and you just continue to live like that, I think it's a, a searing takes place of the, of, of the conscience where you become almost, you know, seared to the point to where you're very difficult to reach after that point. Very hard. Um, Paul identifies those who have a seared, seared conscience in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says that the Spirit clearly says that in the latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. We know Saul eventually went that way. Uh, such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. In this passage, we learn three things about false teachers who lead others into apostasy. They are number one, they are mouthpieces for evil spirits, since they promulgate things taught by demons. Number two, they are hypocritical liars, since they wear a mask of holiness, but are full of falsehood. Number three, they're unscrupulous, or they have no 
moral character. Since their consciences have been cauterized, this explains much. How can false teachers lie with no shame and spread deception with no compunction? Because they have seared consciences, they are past feeling that lying is wrong. You ever turn the lights off for a long period of time in your home and your eyes begin to adjust to the darkness and you can see? Where before it was just like, I can't see anything. But over a period of time, you learn to be able to just go about your day in the dark because your eyes adjust to the dark. You've all been there, right? You understand that? Well, this is what happens, you know, with a conscience that is seared. You get used to living and seeing in the dark. It's not a, it's not a great place to be. Uh, the Bible says that the way of the transgressor is hard. And I believe that refers to a believer because sinning's easy for a sinner, right? It's like dog barking. It's not hard for a transgressor to transgress. But for a Christian to live in unrepentant sin is by far the most miserable state of a believer on this planet. I know that for a fact. There are things you're just not willing to let go of. You know, maybe it's a bad habit. Maybe it's your temper. Maybe it's some other addiction that you have or something. You know as well as I do, it is the most miserable place to be until you come out. That's why we can't, we, we, we can't, we can't live comfortable in our sin. It's because we're born of God. We have the Spirit of God living within us. It's contrary to the Spirit of God. It's never going to be comfortable for the true believer to live in their sin. Now, I'm not saying that we are not sinful every day of our lives. That's absolutely true because we are totally depraved. I'm talking about willful sin, right? I'm talking about practicing sin without any kind of worry or any kind of thought of a consequence. And we just live this way and continue to live this way until the Lord intervenes and doesn't humble us. He humiliates us. Humiliate. I've been there as well. I remember the time. I won't get into it, but it was, it was horrible. Listen, it's better to humble yourself and repent than have God humiliate you. Because God loves you too much to allow you to go on that way. He'll break you one way or another. It's better just to humble yourself, seek God, repent, and move forward than to hold on to that and wait for God to break you. Because your sin doesn't just affect you. Okay? Care how private it is. It affects everyone around you. And God cares about the other believers as well and what the effects of your sin have on them. The Bible says in Proverbs 15.15 that a secure mind, secure conscience is like a continual feast. A secure mind is like a continual feast. Isn't that true? When you have a clean conscience, you can sleep well at night. You know what I mean? Having a clean conscience, there's nothing greater in the world. You can be put in the worst prison on the planet or be in a mansion, but it doesn't change your heart because your conscience is clean. You know what I mean? It's always good to have a clean conscience above anything else. Which brings us to verse 17 and 18 and 19. So Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of all the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners of the Amalekites and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight 
of the Lord. That's mincing no words. That's getting straight to it. What was Saul's response to that? He says, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Still justifying himself. Right? And gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. No, you did not. Once again, a familiarity with God and with Samuel. A very disrespect to the Word of God. He goes on to say, but, and brought back, and this is it. He says, and I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek. When, 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 when Samuel just told him right here, in black and white, exactly what he did wrong, he goes on still, as if he didn't hear him, and repeats the same things he said before. And he goes on, I've, I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But then he says this in verse 21, But the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. What do we see here? We see really a, uh, it's, it's really, it's a, it's, a, it's a twisting. It's a twisting of the word of God. And how dare he do that to the prophet Samuel? To twist the word of God. Make it almost sound right. But not, it, it's not right. You know? I like what Spurgeon says. The discernment is not the difference of knowing what is right and wrong. But rather the difference between right and almost right. That's exactly what this situation was. He was twisting the words to such an extent that he tried to manipulate it and tried to live under that, hoping that somehow through his words, which calls crowding, is when you crowd people with a bunch of words and hoping that somehow it would be used as a form of argument or debate to win his side of the argument. How easy it is to manipulate God's words so that it sounds accurate, but ultimately is a lie clothed in half-truths. It's a lie. Just as the serpent said in the garden, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? It's just taking the same words but nip- manipulating them to make it sound right, but it's not right. It's off. A couple words changed around here and there. You're trying. He's being, what he's doing now He's not only being deceptive in the sense to where his whole ministry was deceptive, right? Now he's trying to deceive Samuel. It's just gotten, you can kind of see the decline here, right? First it was just, you know, deception. Uh, he's going to, oh, I'm gonna, now I'm going to kill my son, right? You watch all of these things. Now he's gotten to such an extent that he's literally trying to deceive Samuel, the prophet of God, in hopes that he can deceive God himself. And this is where his decline really begins to take a hold and he begins to drop. And this is when Samuel, at some level, brings the message that brings down the king. He says this in verse 22 and 23. So Samuel says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he 
also has rejected you from being king. There it is. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord. And he says, your words. First he says, I have sinned against God basically. And then he says, I have sinned against your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me so that I may worship the Lord. Once again, I don't see any heartfelt repentance here. I see just saying the right things to get your own way and to be able to continue in your sin. I believe it was just him protecting his own hide. This wasn't. This even makes it worse. Now it's in black. It's blasphemous because now he's using this as a cover-up, right? Well, I'm using all these fancy words. I'll say exactly what he wants me to say, and then we can just forget this ever happened. And I can just go on my merry way, being the big king on campus, and everybody can just leave me alone. And that's really what he was hoping for. But it, it, didn't, it didn't work that way. Um, I mean, partially he's a people pleaser. On, that even makes it worse because he, he's really motivated as well by the people. And we do know that obviously that, you know, in, in battle and stuff like that, there are spoils of war that God pays the soldiers for. We know that they fought the Amalekites from one end of the country all the way to the other. There would be a sense here of, of them wanting or thinking they deserve some kind of payment for their actions, which quite rightly so. In any other day, in any other battle, this would have been appropriate but not so in the judgment of God. This was a judgment. This wasn't just God saying, go fight these battles, you know, I'll be with you, and you can collect the spoil as your payment. You know, but you understand, it looks like his communication was faulty to begin with, right? Saul, as a leader, wasn't a very good communicator, obviously. So his, the army probably didn't even know any better. They probably said, wait, 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 don't kill them all off. You know, we need these things for spoil. Now, I'm just guessing and speculating, but what I'm saying is that, you know, it just sounds logically in order with the way things were run back then as far as battle ethics were concerned. His confession proceeded not from sincere repentance, but from a sense of danger and desire of averting the sentence denounced against him. He loved the praise of men more than the approval of God. The Bible says what's highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. Wanting to be esteemed by everybody. Wanting the praise of everybody. Then we get to verse 26 uh, through 29. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours. And this is what's powerful. Ready? Who is better than you? Say that to a prideful person and see where they run with that one. Better than you. Prideful people don't like to hear that anyone's better than them. They've always got to be the best. 
You ever tell someone a story and then they can always top it? You met that guy, right? You know, you tell them that story and then they, they always got a better one. No matter what you've done or whatever, they can always come up with something that, you know, stifles yours or trumps yours. It's, yeah, so anyway, listen, someone that's better than you. And he's talking about, obviously, King David, right? Uh, who will be coming on the scene shortly. Then he says, and also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent. In other words, it will not let up. Listen, just because of your failure, sir, you're not in control of the kingdom. God is. We're going to remove you. We're going to put someone here that's a lot better than you. And by the way, Israel's not going to relent. It's not going to fall asleep because of you. It's nature, by nature, is overcoming and conquering. They will continue to victory. And that's a, you know, that's, a, that's a hard pill to swallow. But the reality is, it's true. It's true. Truth hurts. Telling someone the truth, we have to be truth tellers in, in, in our day. I mean, obviously we always want to be very kind and tender-hearted and loving and as gentle as we possibly can towards other people, whether it be in the world or in the church. But for Pete's sakes, tell the truth. Tell people the truth. Be brave. Tell them in love what they need to hear. Verse 30 and 31, Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. I think obviously here, you know, he's trying to save face with his people. He doesn't look like a fool in front of all the people. Loving-hearted Samuel willing to go ahead and continue the worship. And I, I think it's a beautiful, gracious act on his part. Brings us to verse 32 and 33. Then Samuel said, Bring Agog, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag, Agag came to him cautiously. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag, Agag, however you want to say that, in pieces. Now this is the part that got me. Hacked him to pieces. You think, man, wouldn't just one strike be good enough? But he, he hacked him to pieces. And then it says, before the Lord in Gilgal. He did this as a, as a form of worship before God. Think about that for a moment. The slaughtering of this king was a form of worship before the Lord. Just as Abraham went out, came back from the slaughter, and then partook of what we would see this, this idea of communion before God, took an ordinance of God. God was pleased with him. And here we see this total destruction of this, of this vile, vile king right before the altar of God. Before the altar of Jehovah. Just remember this before we close. Sin is always, always. Because I know we all got the picture right now of, I mean, I don't want to put that picture in your mind of Agag in pieces. But let us go ahead and, and consider thinking of that for a moment. You remember when the, the con concubine was, was murdered? outside of the door there, and they cut the concubine up into, into 12 different pieces and sent them all to the different tribes of Israel. What happened when they saw those bloody pieces of that body? 
It says they united as one man and they defeated their enemy. See, we need to look at this bloody mess and realize your sin isn't clean. Your sin is a bloody mess. It really is. It's extremely messy. It isn't clean. It isn't pretty. It's disastrous. But then there's the blood that does clean. And that is the blood of Christ. Let us not forget the bloody mess on the cross. Let us not forget when He poured His blood out upon Calvary. Let us not forget when He was whipped 40 minus 1 with cat and nine tails, practically skinned alive. That's a bloody mess. Because of our sin. Because of our sin. The Bible says in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Thank God for the blood of Christ. But it's also the blood that keeps us moving and sanctified in the Christian life. Revelations 12.11 says, And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. 1 John 1.7 says, The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And having made peace through the blood of, the cro- of His cross. And this is the illustration also of what will happen when Christ comes back as an avenger and destroys all of our enemies when He returns. Yes, He's destroyed the enemy in the sense of we were dying in our sin. He went to the cross for the full weight and measure of God's wrath upon Himself so that we could go free. Yes, He, just, he defeated our enemy in that way. But also when He comes back, when He returns for His people, there's going to be massive destruction. He's going to unload on His enemies uh, to such an extent the Bible says that in Revelation 14, at the great winepress of the wrath of God, and the winepress was trampled outside of the city, and blood came up out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. That's a bloody mess. Christ at His coming when He delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, when He has put all of His enemies under His feet, the last enemy that He will destroy is death. Thank God. The heathen are stamped and crushed till their blood gushes out of the wine press to the height of the horse's bridle, which would be about 200 miles. Get that in your mind. Verse 34, Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went to the house of Gibeah of Saul, and Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, nevertheless, Samuel mourned. Mourned for Saul. And the Lord regretted he had made Saul king over Israel. And Samuel and Saul depart. In other words, you go your way, and I'll go mine. Speaking of that, I'm going to go my own way now and pray. Father, we come before You today. We thank You, Lord, for Your words. We thank You for the Holy Scripture. Uh, We thank You for the church. Lord, this sermon even pains my own heart of just how awful I can be. 
a villain in your eyes at times, Lord. Lord, be merciful to us. Be merciful to us. Grant us the power, Lord. Help us to live godly lives that would be pleasing in your sight. Lord, there's things in our lives that we find ourselves in patterns with. Lord, that you'd help us to break free from those things. Nasty attitudes, pride, stubbornness, that's like idolatry. Rebellion, that is like witchcraft. Lord, that you'd help us, Lord, to annihilate these things from our lives. That we could walk in a way that our hearts, are the, only, the desire of our hearts would be only to please you, Lord. To please you and you alone. Grant us this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.